Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask that you might grant us the gift of illumination this morning. I pray that you would help us to see extraordinary things in John chapter 11. Lord, who knows what you might do with these verses of scripture over these next moments. Would you teach us truths? Would you teach us truths about about death and about life and about the choice that each one of us faces as we stare into the eyes of Jesus in this text? Come, Holy Spirit, help me, assist me, help me to worship over the word. Help us to see you now, in Jesus' name, amen. At this time, it's my privilege to ask you to open a Bible to the gospel according to John, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The gospel of John, chapter 11, starting in verse 1. If you were interested in using one of the red Bibles underneath the seats, today's text begins on page 897, and it continues through page 898. John's Gospel, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. That's where I'll begin reading, and I'm going to read through verse 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? Anyone who walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking his rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but now let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brothers. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, The Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Our mission as a church is fueled by deep doctrinal truths. Doctrine is a word that means what the Bible teaches. When we see that word, that's what we mean. Doctrine is what the Bible teaches. And our mission as a church is fueled by deep ones, deep doctrinal truths. Truths that keep us from merely coasting and drifting through life. Christians aren't meant to be a wandering people, an aimless people. We are to be people not captured by the big game later today, but rather captured by a handful of realities, all of which find their proper focus in Jesus And these truths set us on fire and they ignite us to live lives full tilt for the glory of God, for the building up of his church and the ingathering of all of his sheep. Our mission as a church is fueled by deep doctrinal truths and three of which we're going to consider together this morning. Here's the first. The desire to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ 
is driven by the truth about death. The desire to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ is driven by the truth about death. One of the more active evangelists in the American entertainment world today is the patriarch of the West Monroe, Louisiana Robertson clan, Phil Robertson. Uh, When not filming Duck Dynasty, Phil Robertson travels coast to coast preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to thousands. Commonly, his message of hope begins with a very strong affirmation about the universal truth of death. Robertson frequently says, we all go six feet deep in the ground. I think they're digging him about four and a half feet now to save money. But we all end up in a casket. People wipe their eyes because we're gone. It's called fact. And from that fact, he goes on to talk about the empty tomb of Jesus. Well, this fact is where John chapter 11 begins. Death is a fact. It's a fact for Lazarus. But it's not the raw data about death that drives our mission as much as what the Bible teaches about the raw data of death that drives us in our mission. So here in John chapter 11, let's notice five facets, five practical theological truths about death that drive our mission. First truth about death here in chapter 11, God is sovereign over it. God is sovereign over it. I I trust that reality comes screaming through this story to you, doesn't it? God is sovereign over death. Jesus is told that Lazarus is ill in verse 3. You see that? And by the time we reach verse 6, he's still in the same place as he was in verse 3. Chapter 10, verse 40, leads us to believe that Jesus is somewhere in the Transjordan region. This is about 100 miles from Bethany. It's a four days journey on foot. So just as soon as Jesus hears about Lazarus and his sickness, he doesn't move a muscle for two more days. Why? Because he's sovereign. He's in control. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's at the helm. He's responsible. Jesus' mission is to bring glory to his Father. And in this particular case, he's going to bring glory to his Father through the suffering and death of his friend. Verse 4, Jesus says, It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Death does come to us all. And when it comes, it comes right on time. Right on time. His plans are unfolding perfectly here. Let's be a church that embraces this first truth about death. God is sovereign over it. Second truth about death. Even the beloved of Jesus experience it. Even the beloved of Jesus experience it. Two realities are held closely together throughout John chapter 11. The first is that Lazarus suffered and died. And the second is that Lazarus is profoundly loved. So verse 3, 
The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and his, her sister and Lazarus. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Isn't it interesting that the two things that are never questioned in this text with reference to death are things that are questioned often in our culture, sometimes our Christian culture today? That would be the sufferer's faith and the Savior's love. This is critical for us to remember. God is sovereign over suffering. And furthermore, this suffering for Lazarus is no indication of divine displeasure in his life. In fact, taken together, verses 5 and 6 demonstrate that Lazarus doesn't suffer in spite of Jesus' love for him. Lazarus suffers and dies because of Jesus' love for him. You see that intentionality? Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Maybe with us today and experiencing intense pain or loss of some kind. I know that some of you are. Perhaps a loved one close to you has died and you're just looking for a way to handle it, just how to survive on the other side of it. You need this second truth about death. Even the beloved of Jesus experience it. Third truth about death. For Christians, sleep is the best way to speak of it. For Christians, sleep is the best way to speak of it. Look with me again at verses 11 to 14. Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking his rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. So Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Why, why this gentle euphemism for death at this point? Why does Jesus use the language of extreme understatement for the final enemy of our faith? You know why? Because for the followers of Jesus, including Lazarus, death has lost its sting. It has. Now, Jesus' death is the death of our death. But in John chapter 11, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. Nevertheless, he's already drawing for Lazarus on the account of the riches that his blood spilled in chapter 19 provides. It's amazing. Jesus does speak plainly of death in chapter 11 here, but he prefers language a little less severe. Actually, a lot less severe. Verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. And he's speaking, of course, of eternal death here because Lazarus' illness did lead to temporary death. But eternal death, the everlasting curse of God, damnation, 
The death that Jesus would soon die for Lazarus. That's the death that Jesus is talking about in verse 4. This illness does not lead to everlasting punishment. Psalm 103, verse 10 reminds us, God does not deal with us according to our sins. And we know why. Because God dealt with Jesus according to our sins. Jesus died a horrific death so that at the end of our lives, we could lay down and take our rest. That we will never taste the death that Jesus tasted for us on the cross. So the third truth about death, for Christians, sleep is the best way to speak of it. Fourth truth about death, it's awfully tempting to counsel the Lord regarding it. It's awfully tempting to counsel our Lord regarding it. You know what I'm talking about. Happens in our lives, and it happens in this text, three times in this story. Once with Martha, once with Mary, once with the Jewish mourners. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, it's the exact same language, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then verse 37, but some of the Jews said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man of dot from dying? Of course he could have. This truth about death, this fourth truth about death, is really just the flip side of the first truth, isn't it? That God is sovereign over death. The more we are comfortable with the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things, the less frequently we will be tempted by this reality. But the allure is still there. We know that God has his hand on the wheel of providence, but every once in a while we feel like he, he might need our help. Maybe he needs my hand on that wheel. Maybe I can run things with greater proficiency than he can, especially as it relates to the time of suffering and death. John Calvin, who suffered greatly in his own life, wrote in 1553, let believers then implore the assistance of God But let them also learn to suspend their desires if he does not stretch out his hand for their assistance as soon as they may think necessity requires. For whatever may be his delay, he never sleeps. He never forgets his people. Let's be eyes wide open regarding this fourth truth about death. It is awfully tempting the counsel of the Lord regarding it. Yet we are not his counselor. Fifth truth about death. There is profound indignity in it. There is profound indignity in it. When I say indignity, I mean humiliation, dishonor. Humiliation is actually a perfect descriptor word for the process and the reality of death. Our word humility comes from the Latin humilitas, meaning low or grounded or of the earth. 
So despite what our culture might like to imagine, there is simply no such thing as dying with dignity. It's impossible. Death is indignity. It is profound indignity. We are from dust, and to dust we shall return. Remember what Martha says to Jesus in verse 39? Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. I love the King James Version for this reason. It illustrates my point exactly. This translation that is known for its beauty and for its exaltation and for its these and thous does its level best in John eleven thirty nine 39 to maintain dignity. The KJV has Martha telling Jesus, Lord, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> like putting an if on the end of stink changes this equation. Stinketh. Seriously. It's like lipstick on a pig. The fifth truth about death is very important for us, especially here in America. There is no poise in death. There's no nobility. There's no composure. Death is a mess. Like the rotting corpse of Lazarus, there's an odor. It stinks. The fifth truth about death, there is profound indignity in it. Now, taken together, the desire to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ is driven by these truths about death, and they're deep truths about death. But that's not the only thing that drives our mission. Second thing that drives our mission here in this text is the truth about resurrection. That's point number two. The desire to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ is driven by the truth about resurrection. Now, the greater our grasp of the Scripture's teaching on death, the more profound our appreciation for the reality of resurrection is going to be. The late John Stott once wrote, quote, Christianity is, in its very essence, a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. Amen. Resurrection. Calling to life again. We believe that. We seriously believe that. Changes everything when you believe in resurrection. Chapter 11 here in John speaks of resurrection on at least three different levels. We'll touch on two of them here in this point and one in the final point. The first level this text speaks of resurrection is what we'll just call physical resurrection. Physical resurrection. It's the seventh miraculous sign that Jesus performs in John's gospel. It's the crescendo of the signs in the first half of John's gospel. And it's also a tipping point for the ministry of Jesus. This miracle on a human level is what sets the cross in motion for him. Jesus travels 100 miles so that he can do this miracle just inside of two miles outside of Jerusalem where all the Jewish leaders would see it happen. So let's be absolutely clear about this single stunning irony in John 11. 
In resurrecting Lazarus, Jesus was, in effect, signing his own death warrant. We'll see that in our final point today, but let's not lose the power of this moment in Jesus' life. Do you notice that in verse 33 and again in verse 38, the text says that Jesus is deeply moved and greatly troubled? Without the footnote in the ESV or another translation that you might have, we might be left to imagine that these are the emotions of sadness and grief only. Now, this is grief. Let's be clear. Verse 35 says unambiguously, Jesus wept. But that's not the only sort of sensation that's coming over Jesus in this moment. The footnote in the ESV uses the word indignant. Jesus is indignant. In other words, he's, he's angry. Why? I think on the one hand, he is angry at the reality of these disciples grieving as though they have no hope. Many of these folks who profess faith in him are without hope at this point. And I think he's frustrated at their unbelief. But in an even greater sense, I think he is indignant at the devil himself. He's indignant at sin. He's indignant at death and the chaos and the destruction that evil has brought into this world. It's remarkable that in his commentary, once again, John Calvin compares Jesus to a wrestler preparing himself for a great contest as he moves toward the tomb of Lazarus. Like a horse stomping his hoofs and snorting and readying for the battlefield. Because in verse 43, Jesus reaches into the world of the dead with his words and he looses one of its own as he cries out with a loud voice. Can you imagine him saying this? Lazarus, come out. And the corpse of his friend obeyed the voice of his maker. Lazarus emerged from the tomb. So the first level of resurrection in chapter 11 is is physical. But there's a second level of resurrection in this text, and it's the one that we'll just call final resurrection. Final resurrection. The best place to see this is back in verses 23 to 27 during the discussion between Martha and Jesus. Did you catch this? Uh, Starting in verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, it shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Did you catch what Martha said to Jesus in verse 24? It's incredibly important. Martha says, almost dismissively, I know, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. I don't know about you, but what was cold comfort for Martha in that moment is increasing comfort for me the longer I walk with Jesus. I can't wait for the final resurrection. How about you? Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15, where at the final trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable, 
and we shall be changed. I've got to share something. In our old church, I think it's 1 Corinthians 1551, there was a sign above the changing station for the babies, and it says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I had to say that. We shall all be changed. What does that mean? It means all things new. All things new, including these failing bodies in this earth. Resurrection also includes all of those who will one day be raised to everlasting punishment. So this truth about resurrection drives our mission to be and make disciples. It drives it big time. Everyone's going to be raised one day. No one puts it better than C.S. Lewis, who once wrote, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you may talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping one another to eat one of these two destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke. Those we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So that's the second level of resurrection that Lewis is addressing in that quote, and it's taught in this text. Final resurrection. Lazarus's physical, historical resurrection is also a parable of the final resurrection. Are you passionate about making disciples? Are you bananas yet about evangelism if not ask yourself how seriously you consider the breathtaking future that awaits every single person with a heartbeat today the desire to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ turns on the reality of resurrection that all of us will be raised to everlasting life or everlasting death Our mission is driven by the truth about resurrection. There's no escaping it. One final point today. The desire to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ is driven by the, cho- by the choice that we all face. It's driven by the truth about the choice that we all face. That choice, of course, is about Jesus. What each one of us in this world do with the person, the message of the person and work of Jesus and his claims. Now listen to how this story ends. You've got to see how it all turns out. I'll read verses 45 to 53. He's just raised his friend from the dead. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. 
But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Once again, it happens every time we see either the works of Jesus or the words of Jesus. People are divided, aren't they? Immediately they cleave into one of two camps. People are divided. There's a choice they faced about him, and it's the choice that faces each one of us. What do we do with the Bible's claim about Jesus to have sovereignty over death, power to resurrect? What do we do with the Bible's claims about him? Well, notice how one group responds in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Aren't you looking forward to heaven? I mean, what the stories of salvation are going to be like? Imagine one day you meet someone there for the first time and you ask the question that you'll ask a bazillion times in heaven. Hey, how'd you come to faith in Christ? And the person looks back and says, well, I'll tell you. I came to know the Lord when I saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. I was there. And you say, (laughs) tell me about that. Now, you may be with us today, and you're not a Christian. And not only that, but you're thinking to yourself, what's the point? I mean, I, I can't see these miracles anyway. Why should I believe it if I can't see it? To which Jesus answers in John 20, 29, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have believed and have not seen. Blessed are those here this morning that do not see and yet believe. Now these signs, especially this one was written so that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that in believing, you would have life in his name. So you have the sign in front of you. Do you believe? Will you believe today? This can be your testimony in heaven. I came to know the Lord when I heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And I believed. Believe today. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died like Lazarus but was raised as well. You face a choice about him today. Will you believe? It is amazing though, isn't it? The unbelief in this passage. I hope not in this room. The unbelief in this passage is thick. We've got to look at Caiaphas' unwitting prophecy here about Christ in verse 50. This is amazing. This is a gospel sermon. Verse 50. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Preach it, Caiaphas. 
He didn't know the half of what he was saying. Appointed as a prophet in that moment, a priest prophet, even Caiaphas was preaching the gospel. Now, he is not worthy of this office. He is the man under whose high priesthood Jesus was crucified, but he spoke words about prophecy about the cross. He had a choice, too. I hope these things motivate you. Our mission as a church is fueled by deep doctrinal truths, isn't it? The desire to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ is driven, and it's driven by truths about death. It's driven by truths about resurrection, and it's driven about the truth of the choice that we all face, and that's the choice about Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And by the way, that is the reason why resurrection is precious, because Jesus is the resurrection. Resurrection is precious because it is one of the most vital aspects of our union with Christ. Resurrected to life without Jesus is not worth it. But he happens to be the resurrection. And whoever lives and believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and lives in him shall never die. Do you believe this? Believe it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, to stay the course of our mission requires that we keep truths, inescapable truths like these in front of us. We are prone to wander. We are prone to veer off course. So would you grant us the inestimable privilege of beholding these truths in a fresh way, in an empowering way this morning. Would you help us to know at profound levels the Bible's teaching on death? Lord, this is relevant to us. It is relevant to everyone. And may we know too, Lord, with all of the depth you want us to, the teaching about resurrection the teaching about life. And I pray, Father, that all of us who have been resurrected to new life in Christ, we would not only look forward to our resurrection one day in the final course of history, but I pray, Father, that we would be about the business of helping others to find their way to the resurrection of life as well. Lord, we all face that choice, and I I ask that you might grant us the, the gift to be Helpful, helpful tools in your hands to point people toward Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name, amen.